0: In Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, continuing our study here through the book of Luke, we're down to the final few chapters in the book of Luke, and as we mentioned last week, we're down to the final hours of the life of Christ, and tonight, or excuse me, today we're going to be talking about Jesus and uh, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, Communion, Passover here, so we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be doing verses 14 through 30 here today. I think it's important to get a feel for this because Christ in his final moments on this earth decided to institute this concept that we now call communion. And what does this mean and what does this represent when it comes to that? So we're going to be talking about that today. So with that being said, let's jump right into this. Continuing our study here in Luke 22, let's pick it up in verse 14. It said, When the hour had come... He sat down on the twelve apostles with him, and he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks, and said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, you also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as has been determined, but woe to that man by whom is betrayed. And they began to question among themselves which of them is what, who would do this thing. Let's pray real quick. Heavenly Fathers, help us to have wisdom and understanding as we go through this. Prepare our hearts for communion. As always, Lord, you wrote this, you teach this. Let your Spirit guide and give us hearts to hear in your name. Amen. Now, as we get ready to talk about communion, before we get to that part about communion, there's this one little word here that I can't get past, verse 15. With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Once again, those words, suffer. We've joked before out here that if Christianity had a PR guy, he's not doing a really good job. You would not want to talk about suffering. But that's exactly what it is. Life is full of suffering. And for some reason, we as Christians seem to get really shocked and surprised by this. And I have no idea why. Because God is constantly trying to tell you this world is difficult. He says right here that he's going to suffer in verse 15. In John 16, verse 33, he says, In this world you will have tribulation. He makes that abundantly clear. Paul writes in 2 Timothy, All who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution. Peter comes out and says, Don't be surprised when you suffer because we said it was going to happen. And Paul writes in Romans 8, if you really want to be one with Christ, you're going to suffer like Christ suffered. With that being said, what can we learn from Christ as He's getting ready here to suffer? What is Christ about to suffer with? He's going to suffer physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And we'll get into this more as we get continue our study here in Luke. He's getting ready to go to the cross. There's going to be a physical suffering of the cross, there's no doubt about that. There's the emotional suffering We already hit it a little bit here in verses 21 through 23. He's going to be betrayed by Judas. And in verses 24 through 30, the disciples argue about who's the greatest. So, in the final moments of Christ's life on this earth, he's surrounded by, dare we say, just a bunch of losers. (laughs) He really is. People that are going to betray him, people that are going to deny him, people that are going to run. He has nobody. He's suffering emotionally. He's also going to be suffering spiritually on the cross too when He takes the sins of the world. So He is going to suffer. With that being said, when you go through difficult times, there's only one person who completely understands what you're going through, and that's Christ. Because when you're suffering physically, you can go to the doctor, you can go to your loved one, you can go to your friend, and you can try to explain the pain. They don't get it. When you are struggling with something spiritually... Only Christ understands, and when you are suffering emotionally, only Christ fully gets it. So when it says that he suffered, he understands. Now, here's the thing about him suffering. It says in Hebrews that when he suffers, there's a joy in it. I don't know about you guys. When I'm struggling physically, emotionally, spiritually, I don't see much joy in it. The Bible makes it clear in Hebrews that Christ, for the joy that was set before him, he went to the cross. He was able to look past the physical, emotional, spiritual pain of the cross and see that the end result was salvation. What Christ is trying to teach us is that in this world, you will suffer, you will have rough days, you will have bad days. He goes, but I will get you through them and that there's a deeper purpose in the middle of it. Now, we've said out here many times before, in the midst of trials and tribulations, we very rarely ever stop and say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this pain, and how would you like to use this pain to further the kingdom? Generally, our prayer in the middle of pain is, Lord, make it stop. But God says, I can use this. Because here's the thing. You will suffer, but listen to what the Lord says. If you're taking notes, write this verse down. Psalm 34:19. Psalm 34:19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. We talked about that. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Some of you today brought afflictions into this church. You're suffering physically, emotionally it's a difficult time for you, spiritually it's a difficult time. You are afflicted as we speak right now. But the second half of that verse, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Listen to that. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. So I don't know what you came in here today with, but God says I will help you get through that and I will deliver you out of it. How does he deliver you out of it? By setting the example, number one. But also, number two, by setting the example here of communion. Part of what we do during communion is to give those sufferings over to the Lord. Part of communion is to lay your broken heart down at the feet of Jesus and say, I can't carry this anymore. That's part of what communion does. Too often, we've just become too used to communion. No, I'm not trying to pick on that. I don't know what type of church you guys came out of. Some churches do communion the first Sunday of the month. I know some churches do communion every Sunday. Churches do it the first and third. I actually know one church where they offer communion service every morning at 6 a.m. just for people that want to partake of it. I think that's fine. I think communion is a wonderful thing. The Bible says we're supposed to do it every time in remembrance of Him. Now, the way we do it out here at Harvest is we do it whenever we feel that it fits into the message. We did communion two Sundays ago, and we're going to do it again today because we feel that it fits in. I've never wanted to be that person that says, Oh, it's the whatever Sunday of the month, we have to do communion today. I'd rather do it when the Lord fits in. Once again, I'm not picking on those churches that have it scheduled. That's fine. But for us, if it fits into the message, we want to have the flexibility of being able to do it. But the problem with communion is, if you've been coming to church for a while, you've taken communion... Some of you have taken communion hundreds, maybe thousands of times in your life. Does it ever lose the significance of what it is? See, communion is a time to lay your sufferings down at the feet of Jesus. And say, Lord, I can't carry this physical, emotional, or spiritual burden anymore. I need you to take it. See, the word communion is a Greek word that's koinonia, which literally means fellowship. When you partake of communion, you're having fellowship with Christ, with God. I heard a pastor say one time, this is the closest that we can get to the cross. Now, here's the problem with fellowship. We incorporate fellowship differently than what the Lord does. Don and I have gone down to Atlanta many times. We go see the Braves game and hear all these thousands of people all wearing the same colors, rooting for the same team, and there's this collectiveness. Problem is it's not fellowship. You work with a bunch of people at work. There's this collectiveness of working together. Is it real fellowship? See, this word koinia talks about a fellowship that's based on the Lord. A oneness based on Christ. That's why I think it's so interesting as a Christian, if I run into another believer, I can have fellowship with him or her, even though I don't even know him, because we already have something in common. We both know Christ. You ever do that when you meet somebody? You try to find that thing... When you run into a believer, that thing is, we're both saved in Jesus. Amen. We can have fellowship. That's koinia. So when Christ is talking about us partaking of communion, He's saying you're having fellowship with me, the closest you can get to me at this point, but you're also having fellowship with the body. But that's also part of the problem. Sometimes we don't like having fellowship with the body. See, who is Jesus having fellowship with at this time? He was having fellowship with Judas, who was getting ready to betray him. Then in verses 24 through 30, he's having fellowship with these disciples that are arguing over who's the greatest, that are all going to betray him and deny him. See, the problem is sometimes we come to church and we say, Well, I love that church, I love that whatever, but so-and-so goes there and I can't. We allow individuals to dictate our fellowship with the Lord. And you can see another part of communion, which we're going to get here into a little bit. Satan uses division within the body to keep us from having communion with Christ. But let's talk about what this communion actually is. It's supposed to be fellowship. It's supposed to be a closeness. Well, if you caught here in the book of Luke, there's different cups. Verse 17, that says he took the cup. Then in verse 20, says he also took the cup after supper. Luke's the only gospel that mentions this. If you're familiar all with the Passover meal or the Seder meal, there's four cups that's what he's kind of referring here. It goes back to a reference, if you will, in the book of Exodus. It's Exodus chapter 6, if you want to partake of it. If you've ever gone to a Seder meal, you know what I'm talking about. Well, the first cup is this cup of thanksgiving. Now think about this for a second. That's the first cup, the cup of thanksgiving. So in verse 17, that's what he's taking, is the cup of thanksgiving. What is Jesus being thankful for? He's just getting ready to suffer. He's just getting ready to suffer more than we could ever imagine, but yet he's... Thankful. It goes back to that point at the beginning. He looked past the sufferings and saw the joy that it brought. Right now, in the middle of the storm of your life you're in, it's hard for you to look past that suffering and see the joy that Christ can bring. But we just read in Psalm 34, He will bring you out of every affliction. I think it's fascinating that Jesus started out with the cup of thanksgiving. He's already thankful for what God's going to do, even though He knows He's going to suffer. I hope that we can learn from Christ with that same mindset. Lord, this is a difficult season of life for me right now, but I'm thankful for you getting me through this. I'm thankful for how you're going to take care of me, and I already praise you in the middle of this tough situation right now. Christ set the example for that. Now the second, excuse me, the next cup that he gets in verse 20 is most likely the third cup there, the cup of blessing, which we're blessed for what Christ did. That's what this stuff represents. As you get ready to partake of communion here, this piece of bread represents the body of Christ. The cup represents the blood of Christ. Now, we don't believe that it actually is the literal blood and body of Christ. And if you want to get into more discussion about that, we can talk about that afterwards more. We feel that they're symbolic of the blood and body of Christ. See, this this bread, as it says in verse 19, this is his body. His body that took the punishment and the penalty for us. We've done communion sometimes out here at church before in small group settings. And we'll have one loaf of bread and as we pass this bread, people will all tear a chunk out of it. It's actually very symbolic of Christ's body being ripped to pieces. And what happens is his body was broken. That's why you get these little chunks. Because his body is broken for what he he did for you. He took the penalty for you. So as you partake of the bread, you're actually stopping and thinking, this man, Jesus, who is also God, gave his body up to pay the debt and took the penalty of my sin. A couple weeks ago we were doing something, and our littlest one, Tyrus, who's still pretty little, was doing something he shouldn't do, just playfully, nothing real bad. So I just made the comment, I said, Tyrus, I think I'm going to have to discipline you for that. Elias, our oldest son, heard it, ran into the room, and in all sincerity said, I'll take it. He said, I'll do it. And I said, I said, Elias, I was just kidding, but I still did it anyway, just to prove a point. But I didn't. I'm serious, I didn't. But the body, he was willing. That's exactly what Jesus did. See, here's the problem. You look at yourself, I look at myself. I don't think I'm all that bad. We use words like this. I stumble. I, I, I kind of screw up every now and then. I'm not perfect. I'm trying. Okay, biblically speaking, I'm a disgusting piece of sin. I'm awful. I mean, I am completely, utterly, disgustingly awful. Now, I don't think I'm that bad, because I always can find some guy who I'm a better husband than, some guy that I'm a better father, some guy that I read more than and I pray more than. So, I mean, I understand there's people doing better, but come on, look at the trail behind me. No, I'm a disgusting piece of sin. And so when Jesus says, I will give up my body for you, that's huge. And as you partake of the bread, as you hold that in your hand, you're saying, Lord, my sin caused you to be broken. That's what we think about as we go through it. And same thing with the blood. The blood that was shed is the blood that opens the gates of heaven for me to get in. It brings salvation. It's that blood, that precious, precious blood. Don't ever get so used to communion that it's just a piece of bread and a cup. It's not. It's a picture of Christ and what He did. What's so important about the blood? Go with me to Hebrews, please. Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to do the quickest study you've ever seen on Old Testament sacrifices being a picture of Jesus and blood. Four quick references in Hebrews 9 and 10 and bring everything together. Let's put this all together as you're going to Hebrews 9. Christ said, we're going to suffer in this world. He gave us communion so that way we can take our sufferings to Christ. He gave us communion to be a reminder of the penalty that in, and punishment He took for Himself. I should say that He took for us and the blood that opens up the doors for us to be able to have salvation. He also reminded us in his own time of communion. There's going to be difficulties with other people. But he says we can look past those factions, look past those divisions, and say what matters most are souls being saved in Christ. Now let's talk about the blood. Hebrews 9, verse 13, starts us out and just sums us up what we're going to talk about. Hebrews 9, verse 13 says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What the writer of Hebrews is saying is this If those Old Testament sacrifices could cover your sin, imagine what the death of Christ is going to do for your sin. Well, let's see what it does. Stay in Hebrews 9, our first point, verse 22. Hebrews 9.22, according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. First point, blood has to be shed for sins to be taken care of. This is the point that has to be. The way the system worked in the Old Testament is if I did something wrong, I transgressed, I send some innocent animal, shed its blood for me. It was killed to cover my sin. This should be nothing new. We're going through Genesis on Wednesday nights, and we're going to be in Genesis 3 here this Wednesday, the fall of man. And what you see after Adam and Eve sinned, the Bible says that God clothed them with the skins of animals. Yes, in one way it was to cover their nakedness, but number two, it also showed what? When we sin, something dies. And those animals that did nothing wrong, they were just enjoying the Garden of Eden, all of a sudden are killed. And Adam and Eve are covered now in their skin to show that those blood of that animal covered their sin. Now here's the problem. It didn't work all the way. It just covered. Look at verses 3 and 4 of Hebrews 10. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. So if I was living in the Old Testament, I would take these animals every time I sinned. They would cover my sin, but it would never completely take it away. It was just a covering, a temporary covering that didn't fix the entire problem. That's why we needed Jesus. Look at verse 11 of Hebrews 10. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Think of the role of an Old Testament priest. Every day you got up, and what did you do all day? You killed animals, burnt their flesh, and you wake up the next day and you do it again. A constant repetition of animals dying for sin. Verse 11. Daily standing repeatedly with no progress it was just a covering a temporary covering with no progress that was the old testament system would cover sins temporarily but could never take them away in communion we celebrate what Christ did verse 12 but this man Jesus after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Verse 14 sums it up wonderfully. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So when you partake of communion and you hold that cup in your hand, what you're really holding in your hand is a picture of the blood of Christ that completed the whole Old Testament ritual and sacrifice for you, that completely takes care of your sins once and for all. What a beautiful, beautiful picture communion is. I suffer, and in communion, I give Him my physical, emotional, and spiritual sufferings. In communion, I hold a picture of His body, which shows that the penalty was paid for me. The debt was paid. In communion, I hold the cup, which shows that the blood, the precious blood of Christ, took away my sins. What a beautiful picture communion is. If we could just stop right there, it would be great. problem is verses 21 through 23. There's the betrayer, Judas. See, in the midst of this wonderful idea of communion, there's a reminder for sinful people. It was prophesied back in Psalm, in the Psalms that Judas would be this betrayer. This isn't surprise or shock, God. We talked about that last week. But it reminds us there's going to be people. Look at verse 24. Now there's also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Let's stop and think about this for a second. Is not this the dumbest argument you could have at this time? Jesus is hours away from the cross, giving his life up on the cross for the sins of the world. And here are these disciples that are arguing who's the greatest. This isn't even a question. The resume of Jesus raised the dead, healed the sick, walked on water, fed the 5,000, fed the 4,000, cast out demons. What's the disciples' resume? But there's still an argument over who's the greatest. Isn't it weird that 2,000 years later, we as Christians still argue among ourselves who's the greatest? My goodness, isn't it pretty obvious it's nothing but Jesus? How many divisions and arguments in church have come out of somebody wanting to be the greatest? They want to be the spiritual top dog. And really what it comes down to, it's a picture of Christ. Look what he says here in verse 25. He said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus said there's no argument over who the greatest is. I've already got that title wrapped up, but yet I'm serving you. If you want further study here today, I encourage you, go to John 13 and read the story of Jesus washing feet. And think back to that. The creator of the universe got on his hands and knees and washed the feet of fishermen. That's the example he set. When you think about it from that perspective, why would we ever have one argument on a church over who's the greatest? It doesn't matter. It's Christ. Jesus is saying here in communion, the focus is me. I'm setting the example of servanthood. Do you know how difficult it is? To wash feet? Well, it's tough. If you're in a difficult marriage and God is asking you to serve your spouse, why would I serve him or her? If you had a difficult job and you have a boss that's not the best, why would I serve that boss by working hard? See, we always have these reasons and excuses of why we should not give our full effort. Where Jesus says, everything you do, you're doing it for me anyway. We are called to serve. We are called to humble ourselves. We're not called to argue about who's the greatest. We're called to seek the Lord and the Lord alone. Verse 28, But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I have bestowed upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He's basically saying, Guys, you'll get your chance to rule, but that's in the future. Right now, it's about the cross, and that's what matters. Put this all together. We're going to suffer in this world. Communion is a way for us to give our sufferings over to the Lord. The bread represents the body that took the punishment for us. The cup represents the blood that opened the gates of salvation for us and took care of our sins completely. But as with anything, communion means fellowship. To have fellowship, we have to realize there's going to be betrayers. There's going to be people arguing. And we have to work through that as a body of Christ. Let's finish this up. Go to 1 Corinthians, please. 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians does a great job teaching on communion. 1 Corinthians 10, please. Here in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul, for about two chapters, lays out communion and brings full circle everything we talked about. Look at verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 10, please says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we though many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. So basically, that's what communion is supposed to be. Verse 16. The blood, the bread, communion, fellowship. Verse 17. We're a body of many parts, but we all take this together. I had somebody start coming out to church a while ago, and he made the comment that I've never forgot. He said, it's amazing what church forces you to do is to socialize with people you normally would not socialize with. And it's the truth. Other than Christ, some of you here today have absolutely nothing in common with each other. And what happens is we have a tendency in our little circles of life to surround ourselves with people of the same mind and mindset. And what happens in church is we come together now as one. And as you come together as one, guess what the enemy is going to do? He's going to create all these little fractures and cracks and division. And next thing you know, the church is arguing over silly little things that have no eternal significance. And since we're arguing over those, how can we do verses 8, 16, and 17 of celebrating the communion of Christ? We're too busy arguing amongst ourselves. See, look at verse 20. Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Now we stop there and we say, okay, I have never partaken of the cup or table of demons. Right. But haven't you had moments in the flesh where you realized, I'm not letting the Holy Spirit control me? See, there's, in the book of James, there's this one really interesting verse where it says, when you allow the flesh to control you, the anger, the frustration, the bitterness, the rage, all that, the Bible says you're actually allowing demonic wisdom to control you. I think back to times I've lost my temper and I've got upset, and in the middle of that anger, I'm not representing Christ in any way whatsoever. I'm representing a whole lot of flesh I may never have sat down at the table of demons or took the cup of demons, but there's been times in my spiritual life where I have not been Christ-like. Communion is a time for me to, number one, give my sufferings over to the Lord. That's what we learned in Luke 22. But now communion is a time for me to give my sin over to the Lord. And say, Lord, I am struggling with this. I am wrong in this. I'm awful in this. And I give you this sin that I have allowed to come into my life, that's keeping me, that's keeping me from being the man of God that you've called me to be. I give my sufferings over to the Lord in communion. I give my sin over to the Lord in communion. What else do I do? Stay in 1 Corinthians, go to chapter 11. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Verse 17 is really a behind-the-back slap. Really, what Paul is writing to the church at Corinth is saying, Guys, I have to write this stuff to you because you're not doing it right. What are they doing wrong? Verse 18. First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Basically, what he's saying is you guys get together for communion, and you can't focus on communion because you know what you're focusing on? Everybody else. You ever been in a church like that? Where it's hard for the church to move forward for the gospel of Christ because the only thing we're focusing on is what everybody else is doing wrong. Now Paul also says here in verse 19, there has to be a moment where you do realize there are things wrong that need to be addressed. We can't ignore sin. But I'm telling you this. For every legitimate time that there is a time in church where people have to say, this is a problem, we have to deal with it. There seems to be about a thousand illegitimate times where we're just getting worked up about nothing. I've been the head pastor out here for 13 years, and I've seen a lot of times where we, and myself included, allow little things to become big things. And instead of focusing on souls being saved in Christ, we allow little things to become big things. We never ignore sin. We never push sin out of the way and say we don't need to deal with it. But sometimes there's things in life that have no eternal consequence that we allow churches and people to get upset about. But Paul says here, talking about communion, he goes, communion is not a time for division. Communion is a time for us to realize we're all trying to see souls get saved in Christ. What matters is heaven or hell. That is what matters, and he reminds us of that. One more passage about communion before we close up. Same chapter, go to verse 27. What we're supposed to do during communion is this, in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. What Paul is saying is this, as you get ready to partake of communion, as you get ready to partake of communion, you say, I want that fellowship with the body of Christ and with Christ. I want to hold that piece of bread and think about the sacrifice that was given for me. I want to hold that cup and think about the blood that brings me salvation. So I want that. But at the same time, too, I want to keep to this flesh. Yeah, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I want to stick with that. I want to keep that. What Paul is saying is, you're on very thin ice. Very thin ice. He says, when you come to communion, it's a time for you, verse 28, to examine yourself. To give that sin over to the Lord. To give that suffering over to the Lord. And he says, if you come to communion, and you come to communion with unconfessed sin in your life, you know what's wrong, you don't care what's wrong, and you still want to have the best of both worlds, Paul says it's a dangerous place to be. That's why we always do this before we partake of communion. We always give an opportunity for those that may not know Christ to have salvation explained. And then we also have a time of quiet confession to the Lord to give that sin over to Him. Now let's put this all together. Communion. The bread represents the body of Christ. The cup represents the blood of Christ. The body that took the punishment for our sins, paid the penalty, paid the debt. The blood that opened the doors of salvation. I go to communion... And I do this to remember what Christ did. I have communion, fellowship with Him in the body. But I also have an opportunity to give my sufferings over to the Lord. I encourage you as you get ready to take communion here in a little bit. If you're struggling with something physically, emotionally, or spiritually, this is a time for you to say, Lord, I give this to you. I no longer want to carry this suffering. I want to trade that suffering in for the cup of blessing and the cup of thanksgiving. This is also a time to examine ourselves and say, Lord, I want fellowship with you, but there's this sin in my life. And it's a time to give that sin over to the Lord.